Hello, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. We are excited to have you listen in as we cover the Democratic Party and defining what progressives and moderates are. We hope that we can continue to bring some new perspectives and opinions to the discussion and find some middle ground between competing arguments. This is a podcast brought to you by Sacramento State students and produced in collaboration with KSSU Radio. Without further ado, let me introduce our two guests today. Marjorie Kennedy has been a lecturer at Sac State for four years, teaching a course on critical thinking. She is also a proud graduate of Sacramento State, earning her master's in education with an emphasis in gender equity. These people are going to be left to their own devices, and we're the ones who are the strength. We are the, the hammer. We are the right hand in deciding how this turns out. For our other guest today is Dr. Robert Stanley Oden. He is a graduate from UC Davis, and he graduated in 1969 with a degree in political science. He also has a master's degree in community environmental management from the U.S. International University. Dr. Oden received his PhD in sociology at UC Santa Cruz in 2000. A former Black Panther Party member in 1968, has been active in progressive community politics for the San Diego, Berkeley, and Oakland and Sacramento communities, working for over 50 years, including work as an assistant city manager with the city of Berkeley. The African community is not conservative, is not liberal, it's all those things. It has all these elements that, but, but, but those elements come from a tradition, a tradition of social change. His most recent book is in the, from Blacks to Browns and Beyond, The Struggle for Progressive Politics in Oakland, California, 1966 to 2011, and a second edition covering Oakland politics in 2017 with Cognella Publishers under the same title. So let's go on ahead and get started with today's debate. So, we've asked both our guests to limit their responses to four minutes at a time, so that way we get equal distribution of time for each response. So we'll start with Dr. Odin. Dr. Odin, in your own words, can you define progressive and moderate for us? Uh, These two terms are very politically kind of loaded terms, but but let's first start with progressive uh, and progressive politics. uh, progressive politics really evolved out of the uh, FDR's New Deal programs that brought us Social Security, brought us unemployment. Uh, y- y- you know, people were struggling uh, to, to, to have food, to have jobs. And so the FDR's New Deal programs were really progressive at that point in time in, in the history of this country. And of course, progressive politics goes back before then when we talk about the muckrakers and folks who were trying to a reform politics at the local and, and national level, but but this kind of progressive politics it goes beyond what was happening at those electoral levels and those other things that was going on societally. Uh, so progressive politics, in the modern sense, evolves from the New Deal, and then uh, then basically goes through the uh, the post the post World War II period with the disarmament. Um, uh, 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 activities of people and, and of course McCarthyism uh, uh, was going after folks who uh, they claimed were communists uh, but then it evolved into the civil rights movement civil rights movement really pushed for uh, for racial equality uh, particularly in the south and, uh, and across the country for jobs of course we had the great uh, uh, the great Dr Martin Luther King uh, and the civil rights uh, um, organizations SNCC Core and all these other organizations that were very much involved in pushing the envelope for uh, for, for progressive politics, and then on the Black Liberation side with Malcolm X, um, and, and then uh, then later the Black Panther Party. Uh, these organizations pushed a more radical politics, but all this evolved into new social movements uh, out of the 1970s with the Chicano movement, with the women's movement, with the gay and lesbian movement. Um, uh, those politics really evolved progressivism. And, and progressive politics really is defined by social movements. Um, and the, uh, the tactics that are used by progressives are basically mobilization or street heat, as we call it, um, getting out into the streets, organizing people uh, to vote or, or, or to push on issues. Um, and so that's kind of the essence on a national level about what progressive politics is. Moderate politics is much more status quo oriented. 
and and a little bit more uh, uh, um, in the vein of not pushing too hard uh, for poor and uh, working class people. Um, uh, uh, you can see an example of this with uh, with the fifteen hour uh, minimum wage uh, a, a, a proposal by progressives, which was being pushed by Bernie Sanders and others. Uh, but then you heard. Uh, the more moderate appeal, $11 an hour or something like that. You know, let's not go too fast, too too soon. So that's kind of the essence of that. Now, on the local level, just real quick, on the local level, I define progressive politics more or less in the vein of mobilization, uh, um, pushing for, uh, for rent control, pushing for police accountability, pushing for uh, uh, trying to help people who are homeless. Folks who are more moderate or or who I call neo-progressives, they on the local level they tend to uh, agree with progressive politics, but they don't want to go the next level of pushing for certain things. You see that happening here in Sacramento uh, with, for example, the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors. They always go to the more moderate or more conservative politics, and they and they push up against progressive politics. In city government, we see now some switches and some changes of, of political people. We've got more progressive people on the city council here in Sacramento, and they're clashing with some of the more moderate people. So that's how I see politics. All right, Ms. Kennedy, in your own words, can you define progressive and moderate? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I agree with everything Dr. Odin uh, stated. Um, so yeah, to me, progressives basically are kind of the ones leading the call for, you know, calling out systematic elitism in our country um, that's been in favor of the 1%. Um, I think they strongly believe that must be defeated, you know, in order to accomplish change. Um, they're looking more for things like, you know, Medicare for all, whereas a moderate might say, well, like, you know, we should have maybe, you know, a national health care system, but we should still have the option for people to have public insurance or private insurance if they want to choose that. Um, so to me, like, I feel like, though, with progressives and moderates, at least under the Democratic kind of umbrella, there's been a little bit more of a cohesion on certain issues like pro-choice, you know, LGBTQ rights, um, paths to citizenship for undocumented Americans, um, attitudes about race. Um, I feel like there's a little bit more cohesion than there used to be um, between both progressives and moderates on that. Um, however, though, you'll see, uh, you know, where progressives want, um, you know, to give reparations. Moderates are like, nah, I don't know about doing reparations for Blacks and Native Americans so much. Um, like Dr. Odin said, they'll try to kind of appeal more to like the status quo and try to find that common ground with what has still kind of been our systematic government system for the last 200 years, which has been, you know, obviously somewhat problematic in certain ways. Um, you know, they're not necessarily going to say let's abolish ICE, um, you know, or ending the filibuster or expanding the Supreme Court, whereas progressives, you know, want to look into those things. They're looking to like, let's make change. And I feel like moderates kind of want to stick with tradition a little bit more, Um and not really go against the grain, or as like Dr. Odin said, not maybe as fast um, as progressives want to. So to me, that's kind of where I see the difference between the two is both pacing and, um, you know, I feel like progressives are really looking at the overarching, how do we help everyone? And moderates are like, well, how can we get things done because of the opposition we're going to face? Awesome. Thank you both for that. So following up, uh, Ms. Kennedy, the next question will be for you first. After two runs for president, what do you believe Bernie Sanders' role is in the Democratic Party? Um, you know, really with Bernie, I think that he is this great um, kind of generationally minded representation um, where, you know, the Gen Xers, the millennials, the Gen Zers, you know, silent Gen and boomers can all kind of like relate to him as far as... Um, some of his beliefs, issues like climate change, you know, college being free, um, raising the minimum wage, universal health care. Um, and I think the reason that he's really spoken to, especially like the younger generations, is that he almost represents like the grandfather you wish you had, <laughs> you know, where it's like when I talk to my granddad and he'd be like, well, back in my day, you know, 
here's how things worked. And this is why the country was so great when it was like this. And I didn't want to hear that. You know, I wanted to hear how, you know, we should be moving forward with 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 LGBTQ rights and we should be moving forward on understanding white privilege, you know, whereas my grandfather would have been like white privilege isn't a thing. And, you know, so Bernie almost represented this like grandfather or dad that I always kind of wish I had um, as this younger generation that kind of came up through technology and you know, had these uh, kind of more open gateways to talking to one another through social media and getting kind of working towards social change very quickly. Um, so, you know, I feel like, and then I feel like for the for the boomers and the silent gen, the ones who are like him but don't get heard, you know, like there's a stereotype about the silent gen and boomers about what they're like of that they don't seek change. And I think that he represents those that do feel like that, but you just don't hear from them as much. They're not as loud. So I feel like I feel like he's just this great transitionary like individual that's going to bring kind of all of those like mindedness together across generations. Um, I feel like that's his role. Dr. Odin, your response? Yeah, uh, uh, I thought Bridget really put that really well, particularly all the generation uh, folks, you know, because I can't even name about three of those, those things. But anyway, uh, Bernie um, is, you know, he's been out on the on the playing field for a long time. He was a civil rights uh, worker in doing the civil rights movement. He's always stood up for labor. He's always been there for working class people. So he is he is really the conscience of the Democratic Party now that John Lewis is gone um, in terms of the Senate. Um, he really uh, can push progressive issues, but he has now the ability to look at Joe Biden as a partner. Uh, Joe Biden beat him uh, decisively in the election. And I think that uh, that now Bernie uh, understands that Joe had a much wider uh, base of support than he did, particularly within the black community. And I think that he uh, understands that Joe Biden can be pushed to be, uh, you know, uh, 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 to be more progressive. And I think that this uh, this COVID relief bill really indicates a lot of that. Now, you know, he backed away on the $15, but I think that was smart. And I think that what happens with Bernie now is that Bernie gives Joe Biden some cover to do certain things. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, Bernie can ask for $15 an hour and Joe can come in, well, okay, we can go with $12.50. <laughs> and that's way higher than 750 or whatever it is right now. And so people, oh, yeah, okay, well, okay, well, you know, he's come in with, with some progressive legislation here. And, and now, it's not going to get $15 right now. It's going to have to eventually move up. So I think Bernie gives uh, Joe some cover. We'll see how things work out here. Uh, but I think that Bernie um, is able to bring those different generational groups together because when you have an older guy who speaks like a young person, that's a nice thing to have. Thank I'm you. like that. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I very much wanted to point out how much I love the analogy of the cool grandpa you wish you had. <laughs> oh my gosh, imagine Thanksgiving and how much fun that would be. But all righty, let's move on to our next question. So... Why did America choose a moderate Democrat over a liberal Democrat after having a president who was seen as incredibly conservative? And Dr. Odin, I will give you the first response. Well, I think that uh, Donald Trump was so radical in his tone, in his uh, lying, in his uh, policies that you know, it, it it was going to take somebody who could bring together people who just really understood common sense and understood that this is not the way this country should be run. Um, so, so I think that um, you know we had some good liberal people running, progressive people running for political office, Warren and Bernie, other folks, but I think that they could not. Um, 
in a, in a kind of a sociological way or method, they couldn't operationalize their, uh, you know, their, you know, their ideas, you know, they could not convince, for example, the black community that these ideas are going to be good and, and we can win right now. Black community have been really uh, wanting to get back into the, uh, you know, the political uh, uh, ballpark here with somebody who understood wh wh where they're coming from. So Joe Biden really understood that. And he uh, was able to bring the forces together with Jim Clyburn. Um, and the African community is not conservative, is not liberal it's all those things it has all these elements that but 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 those elements come from a tradition a tradition of social change and joe biden understood that and and to me the moderate position became the progressive position all right miss kennedy your turn yeah i mean i once again agree with everything dr odin said i think that trump represented so much I mean, I'll use the word instability as almost like a minimization of what his administration actually was. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm going to be totally honest here. This is just my opinion. Um, also, like Dr. Odin said, I think this was based on sociological and psychological um, efforts from people, basically, um, that they chose Biden because um, after Trump, America was kind of looking for its security blanket again. It was like, oh, my gosh, the monsters have been coming, you know, like a kid at night when you're in your bed and the monsters are coming and you think your blanket is going to, you know, save you. I think they were looking for Biden as this kind of security blanket. Um, not that he's not effective, because I think he is, but he's not, um, you know, as progressive as some of the other options that we were looking like we were talking about uh, that, that Dr. Odin mentioned, like uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who were, you know, considered to be, um, you know, almost too, like, you know, the media called Bernie a socialist, right, which even for liberals is a very like kind of scary word because we've been taught in school that this is what socialism is and what it's represented our whole lives, especially the older generations. That's a very frightening word to hear at times. So labeling him as such, I think, was to a lot of people difficult. And it's like, well, you know, and he's loud and he's dynamic and he's all these things. And then you had Elizabeth Warren, who's a woman. And as we saw with Hillary, our country's obviously, unfortunately, just not going to vote for a woman yet. Um, I hope that changes, you know, down the road in my lifetime, um, you know, and so they were looking for what is that middle ground? Um, it, well, we have a old, white, heterosexual, educated male again. So let's just go with what we've known, you know, what has we thought traditionally has kind of been our status quo. So I hate to say that about our country. I just think we're still not at a point where, I mean, I hope we get there where we'll be a little bit more progressive. We'll, we'll, we'll vote for the Buttigieg's and the Warren's and the Bernie's and the, and Kamala Harris should have, you know, as a front runner versus a vice president. I hope we get to that point, um, you know, down the road, but I think, yeah, they were looking for the tried and true security blanket. And after Trump, we were just all frightened children in the dark of monsters. So it was needed our blankie. So moving on to our next question, um, I'd like to focus a little more like with the internal Democratic Party. And does the Democratic Party groom future leaders within the party to take over when older members retire or step down? And I will pose this to Ms. Kennedy first. Um, I mean, the short answer is I know. <laughs> So um, I was reading a quote by uh, Frederick Joseph, who's the author of The Black Friend on being a better white person. And he has a quote and it says, um, in the grand scheme of things, the United States is extremely young and has learned nothing from the failures of its predecessors. Like all empires before it built upon human capital, nepotism and imperialism, this is not sustainable. If something isn't done, it will implode. So to me, this quote very much represented what the secession of American leadership has been for the last 250 years. It's based off of nepotism, right? Who do you know? Um, you know, how many of, of our founding fathers have been father-son, 
or have been related. There's actually a few. If you look back through history, we have a few that have been related or knew each other, or you know they're all in the same circle running together. It's that friend of a friend that you're looking to push up to get in the Senate or in the House. Um, and they're all looking out for themselves and they're, you know, building their, they're rallying people together that are going to support their agendas. Um, so as far as creating a secession plan of leaders, of true leaders that we actually need, no, we don't have the diversity in our government that we should have. Um, you know, it's still based upon human capital. The working and middle class is still falling. We're not picking a lot of those people to be leaders, I think, that are more representative of our populations. Um, we're just still seeing that same, um, you know, imperialism, as he said, and, and everything, so. All right, Dr. Odin, your turn. Yeah, um, I agree with Bridget. Um, the Democratic Party does not do an adequate job or they do, do a horrible job of recruiting and bringing in new members. But I think a lot of it is, is structural. Um, you know, when I've been involved with the Democratic Party and, and I kind of felt, well, the way to get, you know, to get in touch with stuff is to go as low, go to the local level as much as possible. So within the Democratic Party process, it's the local central Democratic committees. And these central Democratic committees are very um, hidden. No one knows. I, I mean, you see a list of names on election day. Vote for at least eight of these people to be on the uh, uh, be on the Democratic Central Committee. Democratic Central Committee should be the main body for recruitment and 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 organizing the, in the community. They don't do none of that. They don't do none of that. Um, so. So where you should be having the recruiting happening at, it does not happen. And then the people who are in office, they don't want to move away from their positions. So they're going to stay there as many terms as they can. If it's, if it's a term limited job, they're going to stay there for the whole term time period. And whoever they bring in is usually somebody who's a clone of them. Right. You know, they're eight or somebody like that. So there's you know, there's no really there's no real competition of of, of, of good of good leaders. Not saying that there's not a lot of people who, who don't run for political office, but I would say nine tenths of those people don't have a chance to win because they don't have the money. They don't have the, uh, the name recognition. They don't have, um, you, you know, you know, they just don't have enough to be an incumbent or or an incumbent's heir apparent. So it's um, it's a tough deal. I think the Democratic Party should do a lot better work on the grassroots level of trying to uh, number one uh, inform people about what's going on in their communities to get them engaged with what's happening politically at the local level, then at the state level, then at the federal level. And and, and when you do that, you end up start churning up some gems of people who are wonderful, who can who can contribute, who are diverse. Um, the Democratic Party got to do a better job at that. Now, I, I am going to ask a follow-up question. And as perfect as it would be if it was like baseball with a MLB top 100 prospects list for each team, then how easy that would be. We don't have that. But should there be a way that the Democratic Party recruits future leaders to take over? Uh, Dr. Odin, I'll let you answer this one first. Uh, you mean, uh, how would they do that? Um, uh, uh, you know, I think that, it, it, you know, politics is a matter of persuasion. Um, it's, it's the art of persuasion. And wh whoever can go out there and and be persuasive, uh, but you got to do it within the matter of, of, of organizing. Like when I did my research work in Oakland around um, uh, my book, uh, From Blacks to Brown and Beyond, I went and I did participant observation of what was going on in the community. So I went to meetings uh, and I wanted to see what the grassroots progressive people were doing in Oakland because I had a connection to that community. And I wanted to see how were they reacting to, uh, for example, a loss in, in, in the local elections, in the municipal elections there, now, and how were they going to regroup from that? So I went to all of their meetings of the grassroots organizations, and you start to see who's there and what, who's who's leading this, or whatever. 
And, you know, lo and behold, a woman there named Carol Fife was the organizer of a lot of these meetings. And she just kind of like, you know, kind of whipped people into shape, organized uh, the, the meetings. Uh, she was inspirational in many ways. She went out and and they campaigned for some for some local people to um, office. They didn't win, but she learned the mechanics and the machinery of how to do that. And lo and behold, she ran for city council this past time and won. <laughs> and now she's um, a major figure in the Oakland City Council. Um, and so, you know, that's how you really do it. And, you know, she's going to bring some other people along with her because that's the kind of person she is. So, you know, but that's, a, you know, but that's open politics. But that needs to be ha happening in Sacramento, needs to be happening in other communities. Ms. Kennedy, I'll pose the same question to you. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think looking at, you know, more the local level and, and getting, uh, you know, people involved there first um, and then highlighting those individuals a little bit more as well. You know, I mean, our I feel like our generation has moved towards a very, you know, advertising, marketing based, like kind of let's see everything, you know, and know what's going on all the time um, kind of uh, society that I feel like, you know, we need to hear about these people more. We need to understand more. We need to research more. Um, I also think that within the Democratic Party, they need to probably start, you know, this is going to sound silly maybe, but some kind of mentorship program where it's not their buddy or their necessarily their closest aide that they're picking to mentor, um, but there's a little bit more transparency on the recruitment front. Um, of who is in their advice, you know, who their advisors are. Um, how often are they working with these other community partners, you know, um, with different groups, diverse groups? Um, I'd like to see a lot more Jedi effort going into this, the justice and equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, I would like to see that as their focal point for basically anything that they do, um, it's especially with regards to mentoring and who they hire and who they're putting in their, you know, like I said, their advisory, advisory committees and such. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like the, we just, we need to get away from the nepotism. We need to get away from the, the, who's going to be, who do I know? And who do I, you know, trust because they've been in my inner circle this whole time and start kind of, promoting them to look outside of that at more local governments, at more uh, community organizations for that leadership and diversity that we desperately need in our government. All right, moving on. We are almost done with our questions. Then we'll do our open discussion. We have two left. So this question comes on after the Democratic National Convention. And this is something that I didn't just notice, but a lot of students noticed. And we figured we should bring this up. Uh, why did the Democrats allow the Clintons to speak at their conventions after the couple has been involved in multiple scandals that are shown in the media? Wouldn't that be more of like a public relations disaster? At least like that would seem like it would be to us. Uh, why would they let them speak? And I will pose this to Dr. Odin first. Well, <laughs> I think your, your friends and colleagues are of the younger generation and um, they weren't around when the Clintons were getting battered from pillar to post over right wing crap that just didn't make any sense. Um, and they weren't around when Bill Clinton was president after coming in after uh, Bush. We thought we were going to have another uh, four years of Bush and we thought we were going to have just a string of Republican presidents, uh, Bill Clinton was able to pull together a coalition that again involved African-Americans that were a key element to it. Um, and somehow he became the first black president. I don't know how the hell that happened, but you know, um, you know, he, you know, he picked up the saxophone and played some great uh, blues on it. And you know, he was good. He was good with us. Um, but you know, the thing is, is that, you know, he made some unbelievable mistakes as president. Um, the Monica Lewinsky thing was, was horrible. Uh, I'm glad he wasn't kicked out of office uh, for that. I mean, yeah, he screwed up. 
you, you know, Hillary should have kicked him out of the office. You know, if anybody would have kicked him out, you, you out, boy. Uh, but that didn't happen. Um, and that that act of her not doing that or doing something, that kind of affected people's opinion of Hillary. You know, she said, I'm going to stand by my man. Really? Um, and so that becomes a thing. But then she, you know, she rehabilitates herself in a way, becomes senator, and then she runs for president. And again, the Clintons have heft and they have uh, a, a lot of capital in the Democratic Party. So to refuse them a space at the Democratic Convention, then not to have them speak would have been disaster. And, and they pulled together the older folks uh, to say, we think Joe Biden, you know, is the guy. We believe in Joe. And, and so I think... Um, that you know, Joe keeping them out of the campaign mostly was a smart thing, you know, because I didn't hear much about Bill Clinton during the campaign. Um, Hillary might have said a couple of things, but not much either, because they would have been distractions. Um, but the fact, the fact that they, the fact that they did speak um, at the conventions, I think, was important because they are the legacy of the Democratic Party. Ms. Kennedy, I'll pose the same question to you. Yeah, I mean, I agree really with everything Dr. Odin said. Once again, I, I don't have a ton to add here other than, you know, I, I yeah, I think that there's a legacy there um, with the Clintons that uh, the younger generations probably aren't as quite aware of, um, as Dr. Odin said. I mean, I, I was born in, you know, 78. So like for me, you know, I came in right as Carter was leaving and, you know, saw through Reagan and the Bushes and, and you know, it, like a lot of my life was a very Republican based government. And then, you know, Clinton came out and was, you know, obviously Democrat and um, got a lot done, saw both sides kind of, 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 I think worked across party lines pretty well. I mean, I don't think the Republicans loved him. Obviously they went after him, um, you know, and the narrative on him, I think was, you know, obviously very conservative and Republican driven. And, and that's the legacy that got handed down, I think, to the younger generations versus his presidency. It was more of like the 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 shock value, right, of Clinton getting a what he got in the Oval Office, you know. And so um, and then also, like uh, Dr. Odin said, I, I agree that like Hillary not maybe putting her foot down kind of affected how people saw her and her legacy that she stayed with this person with with everything that went on with his presidency, um, you know, too. However, it doesn't take away from the fact that both of these individuals have devoted the majority of their lives to government and had made some very significant advances, um, you know, with regards to legislation, the economy, uh, foreign policy. Um, you can't, you know, I know we tend to go with really cancel culture at this time where it's like, if you screw up, it's like, well, I'm Xing you, like you're out, like you made this mistake. So now you're completely out of my, um, wheelhouse, which, which is, you know, understandable on some level. Um, but yeah, I feel like for them, they, there was a lot of good there and to not have them would have been erasing a, an important democratic legacy, um, that, you know, if you're a Democrat, you should be proud of. Thank you both so much. All right, we're going to do our last question, then we'll do a little open discussion. But politics are frustrating. And most people are close to done caring about what politicians do because they don't see the change or they don't feel that there is change. Why should we continuously support and emotionally invest in politicians that we elect? Ms. Kennedy, I'm going to pose this question to you first. And really the question I would pose back is, what's the alternative? So let's say we just all give up. We just say, oh, screw it. I'm so tired of this crap and these, these, these awful politicians and, you know, everything they're doing. Um, let's just give up. And, you know, I mean, what's that going to lead to, you know, for our country, if we stop caring, if we stop, um, pushing forward, I think the problem too, that we've been having is, and I was reading an article is the most recent politicians within, I would say the last 20 years is during their campaigns and their debates, they're saying things like, oh, our system is broken. 
our country is broken. It needs to be fixed, which I don't disagree with. There are definitely, um, with regards to especially social structures and the systematic racism and white supremacy that we've had in our country for 250 years, absolutely. Um, that's a broken state of government. But I think what when you keep hearing this, like how we're just this, this is this is so awful and, and everything that negativity really kind of starts affecting um, individuals, you know, and I think Biden actually did a great job when he came and did his speech. And it was very much like, hey, like, we're going to fix this, like we're going to be together. We're all going to work together like this is going to be a unified front, like everybody is welcome to the table. Like, I don't care if you're Republican, I don't care if you're a Democrat. And I feel like it was it was almost that like we could like let go of a breath because it was like, OK, like we do need to all be, uh, you know, working together on some level to see this change. So if if citizens just give up, if we as, you know, private citizens who aren't necessarily into politics, these people are going to be left to their own devices. And we're the ones who are the strength. We are the the hammer. We are the right hand in deciding how this turns out. So, um, yeah, we got to keep caring. <laughs> Dr. Odin, I'll pose the same question to you. Well, you know, um, I think it would, I think it is the intention and the purpose of the Republican Party and conservative politics is to make people frustrated, is to get people against politics to get people to say, the hell with both of them, you know, they don't do nothing for nobody. And it is them who is driving this insanity type of, Donald Trump, more than anyone else in the history of this country, put a negative tinge on politics uh, because he was just so, you know, he was just so uh, out there with his sliminess. Um, but, you know, uh, young people got to uh, understand that they can define the politics. They can create the the politics that they want to have. And you cannot walk away. If you walk away, that means that you're not really responsible. That means that you are um, not really caring. Now, back in the 60s, you know, we had the, you know, we had the first dropout generation going on, but those people, they care. They just say, well, you know, I would, you know, there's something else to do. We, we'll go out here and and have a little commune and we'll create our own society, right? But they really cared about society, but they just didn't have, you know, the vehicles weren't there. But you know, um, I've been around frustrated politics for a long time. I've gone out, I knocked on doors um, in all those communities that I talked about that I've been in, um, cities and urban areas. I didn't go to white middle-class areas knock on doors. I knocked on doors where we tried to get those folks who do not even know anything about politics or the, the people who are the most frustrated are those people out there who are suffering. And trying to get them involved in the politics is really something that has to happen. And it's gonna take young people to go out there and do that and be able to not take no for an answer, but try and be convincing. Uh, 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 you know, when I work in open politics, I was frustrated a lot of times because I was on the progressive side of the fix and we have black people who were in political office. We have black mayors, we have black city council people, but they weren't doing the job for the poor and working class people in Oakland. And, and, and in Oakland, they had a lot of different political organizations. And I said, you know, we need a real true progressive political club. So I helped organize something called the John George Democratic Club. And John George was a progressive uh, black politician uh, who, uh, who passed away in Oakland, in Alameda County, uh, Board of Supervisors, first Black Board of Supervisor there. And, and John epitomized uh, progressive politics in Oakland. So we created this John George Democratic Club to really bring in new faces and new people to get involved with politics in Oakland. And even though I left that organization uh, soon after it, it, was, it, it was formed, a lot of people came out of that who became political people on the, on the front in Oakland. So that's what needs to happen here in Sacramento. Sacramento needs a, 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 a progressive democratic club, or a progressive club to recruit, bring young people in, to have a diverse community, to basically to make things happen and to uh, 
and to get people to become more educated, not to become frustrated, but become more educated. And um, so, so that's what I think is really needed. Um, and, um, you know, I hope somebody pulls that together. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm, I mean, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, first off, I want to thank you for, for creating the one in Oakland. That's huge. Yes. And I understand not wanting to have to go through another one. But I want to thank you so much for answering our questions. Um, I would like to have a little bit of an open discussion. And how this will work is we'll have our mics unmuted. And I'm going to go through my notes that I took throughout our conversation and just bring up some points that I'd like to touch up on. But the first thing actually isn't in my notes, but it's something I noticed throughout almost every question that I asked you and every response you both gave me, which is talking about generations and change. And I think we can all agree change isn't always the most like easy thing to deal with. And it sometimes is very frightening. But looking at generations with change, like what would your message be when it comes to younger generations and how they view change, whether it be in politics, in school, or even their video games that they play? Like, would you want them to be more accepting or would you want them to continue to be cautious about it? And um, I'll ask this first to Dr. Odin. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I think change can be scary if you don't understand the terrain in which you are working in. And what I mean by terrain is like, are you working on a local level, state level, national level? And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's time consuming. Um, one of the things that, that I know that I've done more than a lot of people is go to meetings. I mean, I've gone to more meetings in my life, you know, than anybody would want to know about. Uh, but you got to go to the, you got to sit down with people. You got to be able to wrangle out stuff. You got to sit through stuff that's kind of boring. And so, you know, change happens when people see a need of, 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 of having the conditions that you live in to become a, 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 a better. And so, so for that to become better, it just takes a lot of work. And so changes mean change means work, and um, I don't know if the younger generation is up to that, because I don't know if they understand what that means. Uh, means that no, you may not be on your video games. It means that you not be able to do other things that you've been doing. It means, and, and you know, there's some, some there's sacrifice in all of that, and and I think that. Um, you know, let me say, I admire young people like yourself who are pulling this together. I mean, there is a cool, uh, educated, informed, small cadre of young people who, who, who I think who get it. But we have to expand that. And that's going to take people like yourself to do that. Ms. Kennedy, I would very much like to hear your opinion on this, too, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I was looking at a quote from Mandy Hill, who was saying that, you know, change is painful, but there's nothing more painful than being stuck somewhere you don't belong. So to me, you know, the way our current government society in America is, is painful for a lot of us. Where we are at is very painful. Um, this last year with COVID has been very painful with the quarantine um, you know, people having to really identify white privilege and looking at, um, you know, race fatigue and everything that's been going on. Um, this is this is this time where we're starting to see this change happen. And to me, it's like, I always look to the younger generation for this. And maybe that's because like, I don't know, Gen Xers, we were kind of like this bullshit generation that we didn't really do. Like we didn't, we weren't out in the streets as much, you know, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't protesting, um, you know, and we kind of just kind of, we're like this neutral underground generation that didn't, that just didn't do a whole lot. Um, unlike our predecessors, the boomers and, and everything. So I don't know, to me, I feel like, you guys are the change, the Gen Z and millennials. And I think as a Gen Xer going through the transition of technology and uh, work and, you know, trying to 
kind of not rock the boat at times. Screw that. Like it's time. Like this has got to happen. Like, you know, our generation, unfortunately, I'm, I'm throwing them under the bus. I'll probably get some emails about this, but you know, we did not do our due diligence. We did not go into the streets. We did not do the work as much. Not that we didn't do, not that we weren't active, but just not in the same way. And so to me, change has got to happen. We, this is, it's way more painful to be stuck in this constant, like, like, I'm sorry if I have to see one more old white heterosexual male leader, like if, if that has to just keep happening, I'm like, no, no more, like, like change. We need to see change. So yeah, to me, it's very much like it's that time. I think there's many of us who um, are ready for it. And I apologize to your generation that we're putting so much on you <laughs> to do it, but I'm here for you. I'm supportive. I, whatever I can do to help for sure. Well, you know, we've already got that checklist of climate change and so many other things that we're writing right. up right now, but, right. but, um, I have one more question for the both of you and it's different questions. So I'll ask Ms. Kennedy's question first, but, um, Ms. Kennedy, um, what we were talking about, um, like future leaders within the Democratic Party, and you brought up the concept of nepotism. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard concept to tackle, in a sense, because it's so strong within organizations. And my question to you would be like, what would you see as like a form of getting rid of nepotism, or how would one like try to vanquish it through an organization, not just politics, but just an organization as a whole? So, yeah, I mean, for me, like, you know, there's there's typically now in a lot of of government departments, um, we have to sign uh, documents over and over again of like, um, you know, do you know this person that's coming into your this new position that's going to be working closely with you? Um, You know, what's your relation to them? Um, so, so we're seeing this more. The problem is, is where I'm mostly seeing it is maybe middle management and rank and file. But these higher levels where you have like like Governor Newsom who can appoint right people to certain positions. Well, I don't know what his relation is to this person. They could be his niece, you know, they could be his um you know old babysitter from you know five or six years ago. I don't know. So to me, I feel like we just need a little bit more transparency, especially at the highest levels of who are these people, what is their relation you know, was there any, um, anything kind of, and I I hate to go this legal route, but was there anything signed saying like how they were known? Um, you know, because while it's not always bad, right. It's not to say that my nephew couldn't be a great candidate for the job. Right. But that shouldn't be the reason he gets it is because he's my nephew. You know, it should be based on the best, you know, person for the job. So I don't know. I mean, to me, just make it transparent. Who are these people? What is their relation to the individual who's hiring them or appointing them? Um, you know, and is it in the best interest of the company department or government entity, um, whether or not they're related or, you know, how they know the individual? All right. Thank you so much. And Dr. Odin, my last question's for you. So throughout the episode, you talked a lot about local politics. And as, as you said before, um, your major is political science and you are also a political science professor. It, just want to make sure that's correct, right? I'm a major sociology. Oh. I, I mean, as a PhD. Oh, got it. My apologies. Um, but I do want to bring up the fact that you talked a lot about local politics. What would you encourage like future politicians to do when it comes to local politics? Because so much of the spotlight is on national politics. And it would be very interesting to see a college kid just come out and run for like U.S. senator. So, but it's not as feasible, but looking at local politics, what would you tell future like generations or future politicians when it comes to getting involved with local politics? Oh boy, you know, I think that, you know, local politics, it it relates to what's going on in the community. So I think that first of of all, people need to get involved with community organizations, uh, get involved with what's going on in the neighborhoods, um, and then uh, uh, participating in those kind of situations. Because democracy requires information, good information. So you gotta have, uh, you gotta be informed. So you gotta get informed. You gotta get out there and understand what's going on. You just can't jump out there 
and not knowing what's going on. So once you do that, then you try and bring other people along with you. And I think that's really a key thing because a lot of people, you know, they, they're out there, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to share what they know. And I think that's what is important to, uh, to try and, and build a collective. You know, in the 60s, we were about that kind of collective kind of thing, you know, kind of collective organization. And I think that young people need to go back to some of that um, good old time uh, religion that we had in the 60s of uh, organizing, uh, SNCC-like organizing um, tactics of going door to door, having house meetings, um, talking to people about what's going on. And again, all this takes work, it takes time. And most young people do not want to put that time in, particularly if you're a student, you just can't, you, know, you don't have the time. I mean, I know I mean, they're taking 15 units and they're working. And so, no, there's no more time. So it, it, usually these kind of things are going to happen after you get out of, out of school. And, and after you're out of school, you'll be able to then um, find out where, you, uh, where your niche is. But really, um, you, you shouldn't wait until, you know, you know, the certain quote unquote right time. You know, we're in a crisis point in our country. We are in a social justice paradigm uh, regime in, in that we need to look for, for ways to bring about equity, equality, diversity in our society on everything we do, on everything we do. And young people have to be the enforcers of that in terms of going out there and saying, this is what we need, this is what we gotta have. And, and, and the political people who are running for office aren't able to deliver that, we will deliver that. And that's how you get change. Well, thank you so much for your answer. And I wanna thank both of you for coming on our podcast. I know you both have busy schedules. So thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us, share your perspective and your opinions and your knowledge that you've learned throughout all your years. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. And I also want to do a quick shout out. I'd like to thank KSSU for helping us put this podcast together, as well as our staff that helps us write the questions, come up with our social media, and also research these topics and what's appropriate to talk about on the air. So without further ado, I would like to thank everyone who was involved with this podcast, and I hope you all have a great day.